Hey guys, I'm Shane, once again, here with Monty Warden, a great songwriter, guitar player extraordinaire, yeah. band leader, many hats you <laughs> Two wear. out of three hate band. <laughs> so tell us, let's get started by kind of your history with us at the, here at the Mucky Duck. When did you start playing? Uh, I reckon the first time I played here was probably maybe 88 or 89 with the Wagoneers. 90, maybe. 90. We opened in 90. Yeah, well, it would have been, yeah, y'all were <laughs> brand new. No, because I remember it was a brand new, uh, we were booked uh, to play brand new joint in Houston, yeah. and we were booked for two nights, Friday and Saturday, two shows a night, and we felt very cabaretish with that. That we felt very <laughs> uptown, <laughs> which is not something we were used to. Right. So y'all did two nights, two shows? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, we were, uh, three of the guys were from Houston. Okay. And I was born here, uh, but I grew up in Austin, and uh, so... You know, you could fi you could fill the joint just with our kin, you know. So yeah, uh, it was easy to do uh, two nights, two shows a night. But it was I think that might have been the first time we ever did two shows and two shows a night. We we would have two night stands some places, but I think it was the first time where we did like turn the house. We felt we really felt like a big deal. Okay. Well, it is kind of a big deal. <laughs> well, I don't know many. <laughs> 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 All right, let's get started. So, uh, what was the first and last record that you you bought? Uh, the first record I ever bought. Uh, I was uh, five years old, and we five. were we were at Kmart, and my dad said you could go pick out a record because my my si I had an older sister, and she could get a record because you know she was this was seventy three, so uh, I don't know what she was going to get, but I saw that they had Elvis via satellite from Hawaii. Nice. And it was a double record, right. but it was priced for just one. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I'm going to get two. And so that was the first record I ever bought, uh, and I loved it. And it's just, you know, and if you remember vinyl, I mean, like you oh, would yeah. just watch it like it was the television, you know. Yeah. It was just, the music just had always, always captivated me. I've always loved my records, and, and uh, uh, I would say the la the most recent record I bought Brandy and I've been buying a lot of vinyl okay. here of yeah, late. Yeah, I collect vinyl myself. And uh, I, I think the last thing we got was because uh, uh, we had it on CD, but we bought on vinyl uh, Charles Mingus's Blues and Roots. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And we just and and after having it on vinyl, it's like, man, that thing should only be listened to yeah. on vinyl. Yeah, really, yeah it's really like the jazz stuff and the the, the blues and it oh, sounds so much better. It's incredible. Oh, I feel the same way. So, do you remember your first concert? Was the first concert you got drugged to by your parents, and the first one that oh, you went to? Oh no, no! As it, man, I had the I had the best first concert yeah. story than anybody. Well, let's get first it. time I saw it was I saw Elvis in 1977 <laughs> in Austin. I was nine years old. Where was it? Uh, uh, the Municipal Coliseum. Is that uh, the one? Municipal Auditorium. That's the one that used to be by the shore down there. Yeah, it's yeah. And now it's the Long Center. Okay. And it was yes. Austin's uh, biggest joint. They were they were building the Frank Irwin Center, but it had <coughs> six thousand capacity. And uh, we couldn't believe Elvis was coming to town. And I remember, uh, not to keep slamming my late sister, God love her, <laughs> but, but I remember they, they, they had on the news, that, that means like it was like a, a stinger. They said, the king of rock and roll is coming to town, story at 5 o'clock. And my mother came in with a, sack, a couple sacks of groceries, and I said, Mother, Elvis is coming to town. Can we go? Please, can we go? And like I said, I was nine. Yeah. And, uh, wow. and she said, baby, Elvis doesn't come to towns as small as Austin. Uh, and I said, well, they said the king of rock and roll. And my sister, God love her, said, well, maybe they meant Elton John. And I remember 
even at nine, just being full, filled with such disdain for her musical <laughs> taste. I went, no, they didn't mean Elton John. And my mother went, I'll never forget this. God love her. She said, well, there isn't but one king. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. So, and what I learned later from getting to work uh, with so many people in Elvis Presley's organization was towards the last 18 months of his life, Colonel Parker put him in smaller markets because he looked so terrible and was in, in bad shape. Oh, really? So, so they took him out of the major media market so the media wouldn't cover, you know, just the shape he was in. That's so crazy. that explained why he was in Austin. Right. And we went, and I, rem I remember the show was incredible. I remember there was a woman right in front of me, and, and he, he came out. She had a big old beehive hairdo, and she was just beating on her husband. It's him. <laughs> this poor guy looked like looked like she'd probably been beaten on him before, but but uh, that's exactly how I felt. I couldn't believe it was him. And I remember when we were going back to the car, and the thing is, it was a big deal. Like my dad and I wore suits. Right. It's like almost like we were going to church, you know. And uh, uh, I remember my folks talking about that he was heavier, and he and he wasn't as good because they had seen him. Both my folks grew up in Houston, and they both saw him at Eagles Hall, uh, opening for Slim Whitman. And they saw him at uh, Herman Park at his big show, the big uh, uh, integrated show. At Herman Houston's, Park? Well, yeah, it was in 56, and it was the first major show where no attempt was made to separate whites and blacks. Really? And so really, like my dad always said that that was a huge part of his social awakening was just being around black kids his own age. And he was, he was told they were going to hurt him in some way and as soon as he got there he was he, he said it was obvious to him that the black kids had always been told they'd get lynched right and everybody there just realized they wanted to hear heartbreak hotel right <laughs> you know That's and it really cool. just taught him about the power of music and stuff but but i remember my folks talking about how elvis wasn't as good as they remember and i remember just looking at them going i don't know what the heck y'all are talking about that guy was great because it's the only elvis to which right. i could you know um have an opinion and it, it was just stunning but you know one thing about uh, him towards the end there, and I think it's true of any performer, uh, his charisma never went away. Mm -hmm. So he was still just a, as fascinating, just a creature of presence to see, you know, something that had to have been like, you know, seeing Muhammad Ali or something like that. Right. Where it's just, you know, just you, you just can't take your eyes off of him. So it was a great first sh first show. Yeah, that's cool. To. I mean, yeah, that's, that's uh, pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, King of Rock show. Rolls, pretty badass. <laughs> well, I don't think you're right. I don't think anybody's taught that one yet. No. So, so what uh, what have we do, been doing during quarantine? Are we Netflix in any series? Are we uh, yeah, uh, doing a lot of writing, yeah, reading books? I've been uh, I've been writing a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, we we put out the Monty Ward and the Dangerous Few album in the middle of all this. We oh, yeah. we had everything set to go for June nineteenth months and months ago. Right. And uh, we talked to the publicist, and she said we can delay it or we can put it out. She said, I tell you, nobody's putting out a record right now. You'll have the press all to yourself. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, we did, and, and the national press on the record uh, has just been stunning. It's by, by far the best press of my really? very blessed career. Yeah, so that was a, that was a smart move. That I mean, I'm sure it's a great record. It's, it's not just because it's Right, exactly. It's but I, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, that's that, actually pretty smart. I didn't, I didn't think, even think I about that. I would never – well, it's one of these things where it's like any, any other success I've had in my life. I've completely lucked into it, backed into it, wow. <laughs> nothing to do it overtly, but it was a, it was a good— Modesty, people. It's no, modesty. no, not at all. It's just it was a good you know, uh, move to make that other people decided not to put out records. So there was, with the dearth of releases there, we kind of had, had the press all to ourselves there for about three or four weeks. And 
that wound up being a good deal. And, and other than that, just staying in shape. I'm, by the grace of God, I'm, I'm able to run. And we, we have a, a state park two miles from our house, okay. a little less than two miles. And so I run about seven miles a day. And oh, you run seven miles a day. And so it was just nice to – we never lost access to the park. Right. I mean, we were having to sneak in, but we never <laughs> we never lost access to the park. I'm doing two, and I feel pretty good. Oh, I, I, yeah, well, I can't it, do seven. It, you know, what, I, everybody starts running <laughs> one step. And you I know? pull my calf. And it's just, it, uh, but it was the it was the best way to it was as, you know, because you run, it's it's as spiritually fulfilling as yeah. it is physically. You know, it's like yeah. people say, "What are your steps or what's your time?" Or I go, ah, "I don't do any of that. I just just get right." You yeah, know? exactly. That's the way I feel about it. Put right. on some music and yeah. just go, just go. So, um, other than Elvis, do you have any celebrity crushes you care to talk about? You, you know, dead alive when you're young. Now, oh, I just. Do you have anybody that you were? I uh, only reason why I ever picked up a guitar was because of Buddy Holly. Yeah. You know, uh, I was about nine or ten years old, and I saw uh, saw a picture of him, and he was he wore glasses. I wore glasses. He had curly hair. He's kind of goofy looking, and I and he was from Texas. I love that he's <laughs> yeah. from Texas, and, and I just went, well, I could, you know, I can't look like Elvis, and I can't <laughs> can't be cool like these other guys on TV, but. That guy right there might be somebody I could be like, and yeah. and I uh, heard the music, and the music just you know turned me on, and, and uh, but always uh, for some reason because nobody in my family's in the music business, but uh, I've always been real interested in uh, songwriters and songwriting. Like on on records as a kid, I'd always look to see. Well, that's that's the next question. Who wrote the song? Who's your favorite songwriters out there? Oh. I know that's loaded. You know, I do all of them. But you, you know, mean all like time or like right now? Yeah, all time right now. Just you know, a couple, all, couple all time, people. You know, uh, if you have one, it's all time. It's kind of tough. I love I love Johnny Mercer. I love Sammy Kahn, Jimmy Van Heusen on the more root side. I, I love uh, Hank Williams, Chris Christopherson, Johnny Cash, of course, Buddy Holly. So all of them. You know, Lennon <laughs> and McCartney, all the people that can just right write a catchy song and make you feel like you've never heard it before, but it sounds familiar and all that. But you know, uh, right now uh, there uh, there are a bunch of great writers uh, right now. You know, I, I love Jason Isbell, of course. You know, it, the fact that he's my one of my best friends doesn't matter. But Bruce Robinson's one of the best songwriters. Yeah, I love I've ever Bruce. Heard, yeah, you know? I love him and and love him personally. There's this writer out in California, Savannah Gear. She's writing great stuff. And uh, Chip Kenman's always been one of my favorites. And I just I love. Uh, I love songwriters that um, really get to the heart of the matter, uh, use a great economy of words, but without being cliche. And, uh, you know, like I love the new uh, Ray Wiley record. I think it's great. And, of course, Guy Clark's one of my favorites. And just uh, just those, those great, great poets that uh, can do it without sounding like they're trying too hard. Right. There's a lot of Texas writers in there. Well, yeah, but, you know, I, I think that's – that that makes sense too because uh so many so many of the great writers have come from texas and, right. and and also the one thing about being around from around here is uh people appreciate your music they'll give your music a chance but because there are so many venues to play you have to be able to keep people dancing keep people entertained so there's a there's a certain commerciality that is is a common thread like 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 you look at Bob Wills up through Ernest Tubb to Lefty Frizzell to Buddy Holly to uh, Janis Joplin, you know, up through ZZ Top, 
through Stevie Vaughan to Gary Clark to Guy Clark, and their music has nothing to do with one another. Right. But they all sound like they're from Texas. That's true. You know? That's true. And I think that common thread is just, you now Willie Nelson, Waylon, of course, uh, is that they, from a very early age, had to write songs that uh, were entertaining mm-hmm. and not so much eclectic or artistic or something. Well, it seems like, you, you know, you talk about the venue thing, it's like every town in this state has, you know, one of these old dance halls or right. one of these, uh, even the small, you know, small towns have these big kind of dance halls. So, well, I, I guess it breeds that sort of. And and the main thing is just like one of, one of my, <laughs> one of my best music business uh, occurrences ever happened to me. It was one of the very first times I played the Broken Spoke in town in Austin and the uh, place was packed, but it was the Wagoneers and we were pretty loud band for the broken spoke right and uh, and i and i just went up to mr white uh when we uh back then we took breaks now when we play the spoke we don't we just play three and a half hours straight we don't take <laughs> breaks but i don't like, like breaks like bruce like just, bruce springsteen just said. got well you know but here's the thing breaks suck because yeah. you lose your mojo the audience loses the mojo but anyway so i went up to him and i said mr white uh were we too loud and he looked at me and he said my place is full <laughs> that was his that answer. Was <laughs> when, that's right. You're right. You're the too quiet, too loud. Place is full. Yeah. Who gives a damn? I I can I can attest, yeah. attest to that sentiment for He's sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? Right. Who cares? So, was there ever a moment in your life, like a, just you know, when you were a kid, just you heard something, or you heard like a riff, or a song, or a a lyric that made you say, "I want to do this for the rest of my life. That's what I want to do with my life." Uh. It was. It was the first. It was the first time that I, I heard, uh, and it was my mother's record. But I heard. Uh, my, I was playing my mother's record of "That'll Be the Day," the original on the Brunswick okay. r- uh, label with uh, the Crickets and Buddy Holly's uh-huh. name's not even on it. And uh, and it, I just went, oh my gosh, that's that's the greatest sound I've ever heard. And 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 then after that, like the little things that kind of planted the seeds for me was, you know, I was, uh, I was always skinny and girls scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and I just, I, I liked them so much and I would always say something goofy or not at all. But I saw Saturday mornings on American Bandstand that guys with guitars didn't have to talk to girls and they screamed for them. And I went, well, I'll try that because nothing else is working. <laughs> so it was basically the, the ladies screams that made you say, well, and just, the crickets. Yeah, just, if, no, it's just, you know, how, how, how can I, how can I, and really, it's brilliant. if, it didn't matter, since we crawled out of the cave, right. it's all been, how can we get a chick to dig It's us? all what it comes, it's yeah, that's all, all it comes, and if somebody tells you it's something else, they're alive. I, I, so, that's what it was for me, it's like, <laughs> oh my God, maybe I could have a girlfriend and not have to. Finally, some on- honesty, <laughs> finally some honesty out of somebody. <laughs> But really, they, but I, when I was a kid, I mean, I'd like, like I'd go up to talk, I'd be so cool, I was ready to go. I'd go up and talk to a girl, and I'd go, oh, I just, my lips, mouth would go dry, I'd run out of stuff to say. I'm still that way. Yeah, well, me too. That's why, that's why I still <laughs> do this. <laughs> so, uh, uh, dream band, who, who's in your dream band? In my dream band? Or you can just be the tambourine player for Aerosmith or something, I, you know, or do you just have certain players? Boy, I, you know, I, I know that's kind of loaded not too. to sound, I mean, really and truly, uh, the lineup of my band, The Dangerous Few, I, I, if, if God said, I'm going to give you four musicians, 
I picked Moss, Brent, T, and Eric. That's very sweet of you. No, not no. Yes, ask them. I ain't sweet. <laughs> These guys just you know because cause well, really great. it's like you know I go to make my first record in twenty years and I go oh and by the way guys I wrote a bunch of like Sinatra type j- type jazz and none of them just looked at me and went you're a honky tonk singer what the hell are you doing they just went cool okay send us the songs and and the album turned out great and and I love the guys because because really what I've learned is. Um, there are there are tons of great players, tons of great players, but the guys that rise to that upper upper echelon, that become the wrecking crew, or become, you know, the guys that were, you know, the same guys that were in Graham Parsons' band, were in Emmylou Harris's band, were in Elvis's band, you know, were in Rick Nelson's band. It was all the same four guys, and everybody's got great chops. So many people have great chops. But what I've learned from having done this since I was fourteen, and I'm fifty three now is really it's the great hangs the guys that are pains in the ass no i deal with it it's the point they they wind up they'll they'll hit that middle echelon and they'll never climb any higher because they're just pains in the ass and and now everybody with whom i pick are great pickers great chops and they're just great hang right you know yeah yeah it's got to be important especially when you're in those long car rides or you know 250 dates a year and (laughs) And sometimes you're in a car, sometimes you're in a bus, sometimes right. you're in a bus and a plane, and and then sometimes you're just, you know, everybody's taking a skateboard at the game. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and it's just if everybody just has just a good attitude, and and really, man, this is, it's like, there's a dear buddy of mine, dear friend of mine, that's an army ranger, and and he has done some things to keep us safe and free, you know, and. His crappy day at work looks a lot different than my right, crappy day. Of at course, work. so yeah. I'm I'm always grateful to get that. Now, this is the only job I've ever had, man. I mean, it's just like uh, I'm my I've been so blessed for the whole ride. So I was going to ask you what your first job was, so, but I guess this was it, huh? Uh, this was it. Nice. This this was it. I, I maybe I think I delivered typewriters back in the mid '80s for like three weeks, but other than this, I've either been in bands or uh been a staff songwriter at a publishing company or but it's always been just making stuff rhyme somehow or another oh you're one of the lucky ones then. oh it's incredible so what is uh you got any guilty pleasures that you want to tell you know a couple hundred people my whole life's a guilty pleasure <laughs> i thought we just covered that <laughs> i mean really it's like well i know something you don't want like do you you know Follow Britney Spears on Instagram, which I say a no, lot, or you know something you know, kind I, of. I, uh, people, for some reason or another, I don't know why, but but when people like have like a not one of these type of conversations with me, I, you know, I have an extraordinarily foul mouth. I mean, well, you can fire away. This is it, all this it's, is all paid for. It's, this, is uh, this isn't going on ABC. It's it's uh, I I can I can paint <laughs> me a picture. So. <laughs> But uh, but they all they say that's also uh, an indication of, of a poor vocabulary. Yeah, and well, I think my I'm, I'm probably this in the Texas same, public same school <laughs> education sometimes shows with that. I'm in the same boat as you. Yeah. All right, my now I got a three parter on this next one. I kind of get a little grief over this because people don't want to pick between the two. But we're gonna. Doesn't mean that you don't like the one band if if you say you know. So my first one is the Beatles or the Stones. Oh man! It doesn't mean you, you're disrespecting anybody. And you don't have to answer. You can say both. No, uh, uh, when I'm courting somebody, <laughs> the Beatles. When I'm trying to screw somebody, the Stones. Back to the girls. <laughs> it's all. It's all about the girls. That's okay. what that is. Willie or Johnny? 
Oh, Will. Willie. And, and I and I think both of them would say the same thing. Is that a Texas thing? <laughs> no, no. I th- I th- well, but also I, I think so much of it is, uh, you know, Cash was and is so brilliant occupying that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but between I walk the line on Sun Records and uh, the American recordings, there there's not. A huge breadth of work, right. whereas with Willie, you go from you know and Stardust Willie's to you know it, what he just put out, and he's and, still going, and and That's just great. and and just the uh, stretching so many boundaries, and and uh, the fact that the same guy that uh, that wrote Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground, the same guy that wrote Crazy, is the same guy that wrote right. you know he's like, time he's like the away. prince of country music, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't I thought I knew how you're going to answer this next one, but I'm not sure since you said you did a Sinatra record, but uh, Sinatra or Elvis. Oh man! Wow, Sinatra Presley or Sinatra? Uh, Same thing with the girls. If you're trying, to <laughs> no, I, you know, just uh, Presley. Presley. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just it's uh, they both. You know, Sinatra had an indelible mark right. on. The course of popular music, and Elvis had an indelible mark on the course of mankind. I mean, really, like you know, I was saying earlier about what my dad had said. Uh, Presley probably did more for race relations in this country than any piece of legislation. You know, it's, it's like so often people talk about, and it, it's so intellectually lazy to say Elvis uh, pr- uh, appropriated someone's talent or right. appropriated, stole something from Little Richard or whomever. And one, you can't steal talent. You can't transfer talent. You can't appropriate someone's talent. And right. that's true of performing and singing. It's true in politics. You know, uh, obviously, you know, uh, the greatest campaigner I've seen in my life uh, was President Clinton. Okay. But, and if he could have transferred any of that talent to his wife, he probably would have. You can't transfer that. Okay. And Elvis did not steal Little Richard's talent. Elvis did not steal Big Boy Crudup's talent anymore. I mean, the most influential singer on Elvis Presley was Dean Martin. And no one has ever said, oh, he stole everything from Dean Martin. Right. Because there's no virtue pellet in the little society hamster wheel for that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, and really what what happened with Elvis was uh, in the late 40s, President Truman not so much tried to integrate but tried to desegregate public housing. And when they tried it in Memphis, the carrot was if you were a white family and you were willing to move not to but close to the black projects there in Lauderdale Courts in Memphis, you could go from a one-bedroom bungalow to a two-bedroom bungalow. And Elvis had never had his own bedroom before. And Mrs. Presley made one of the – made this decision that changed the course of mankind. They were willing to move closer to the b- black families – so Elvis could have his own bedroom for the first time in his life. So he walks home from school, and really think about it. This is 1947. He's 12 years old, and he is around more black people than most whites anywhere in the country, north right. or south, in the same socioeconomic situation. So he hears their stories. He hears their laughter. He smells what they're cooking for supper, and he hears their music. Then he goes into his house, hears those stories, that laughter, what his mama's cooking, and he hears that music. And you put all that together because 
Elvis has sold 1.4 billion records, and you're not going to touch one out of every six people on the planet by being inauthentic or having uh, appropriated that from someone else. Right. In the same way, I never once have heard anybody say, well, Bruno Mars and Prince and Michael Jackson stole everything from Elvis. Because once again, there's no social pellet for that. And Michael Jackson wanted to be Elvis so bad, he married his fucking daughter, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but nobody ever talks about that. So I, I think Elvis, Elvis changed, he changed the course of history. And he made, like, like Frank Sinatra made pop music a better place. Elvis Presley made the world a better place. And I hope in time when people want to have a historical conversation instead of a hysterical one, that, that people will, will actually look at the, what happened and the facts and, and give Elvis his due for not a man that appropriated or stole anything, but a man that took an entire form of music to a wider audience than had ever known it. And, you know, economically speaking, Elvis Presley certainly, <laughs> statistically, probably created more black millionaires in the 50s and 60s as songwriters than anybody. I'm going to go home and listen to some Elvis tonight. By God, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, sir, for sitting down and talking to me. Yeah. I was appreciate that, it. That was interesting. That was that, cool. That is actually, uh, I'll have to look all that up. Maybe oh, do some more Elvis research. Oh, well, you know, and it's just so, oh, he stole everything. How do you steal something? How do you steal a show? How do you steal charisma? How do you steal talent? You don't. Right. It'd be like, you know, go, well, uh, I've been looking at how Tom Brady <laughs> throws the ball. I think I stole everything from him. <laughs> you as good as him? Oh, no, no. It's the same damn thing. <laughs> Got strong feelings about Elvis over here. Thank you, sir. That's awesome. All right.